All right, well, <laughs> let's try this again. <laughs> All right. Today, as in today, is June 3rd, 2014, which is a Tuesday. And this is episode 70 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as usual, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. It is an auspicious day. It reminds me of a song by a group by the name of Yellow. Which most people won't know. You may know them because they did uh, some music for Ferris Wheeler's Days Off, which for our younger listeners, you probably don't know this movie, and I cry. I weep for you. But Yellow has a song called 3rd of June, End of Game, and it's all about the 3rd of June, and it's a clever little song, so go find it. And, there. That's- and it is also uh, the... Uh, the- well, well, actually, you know that, that kind of gets into the conversation I had with Bob. Really? Well, yes. look at that amazing in, unintentional segue. Uh, that's right. So Bob, Bob wanted me to pass on a very important message to actually to you. He wanted me to. Well, b- before we get into this, though, yes. Do, do we want to do our normal intro, like who we are and why we're here, and or, or are we going right into Bob? We're go- let's go right into Bob. Okay, right into Bob. Yeah. Craziness, right? T- totally crazy. Right. So, yes, uh, Bob. You know, he uh, may or may not have been involved in that whole prisoner thing, but he mm. took some time out to ask me to pass on a uh, a special uh, congratulations for completing another trip around the sun. That's very thoughtful from Bob. Thank, tell Bob I said thank you, and now he's just given away a key piece of information for identity theft. That's, so that's true. Thanks. Next time he can just blurt out my social security. No, seriously, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm I am indeed another year older. And the podcast is so important. I'm recording a podcast on, on his birthday. I mean that's that's dedication right there. It is. Or or boredom, one of the two. <laughs> well, I'm I'm happy that I can entertain you. <laughs> it's true. It's Jeez. true. Anyway, wow. thank you. Seriously, thank you. Absolutely. So back uh back on track. Uh, the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employers, past, present, or future. So, kind of jumping into our stories, the first thing we have tonight is a report from Ponemon, and boy, I, well, I, you know, I, I will... Uh, I guess I'll I'll let everybody make their own opinion. It's a report titled Privileged User Abuse and the Insider Threat. It was apparently paid for by Raytheon. And I'm sure Raytheon has some stuff that addresses the uh, the, the findings in this report. But the uh, there are some interesting things in here. And I'm particularly always interested in the what I would call the privileged user threat. I don't think a lot of companies pay enough attention to it. So that's why this this particular thing caught my eye. And, you know, what is a privileged user? Hopefully it's pretty 
apparent, self-apparent, but it's uh, database administrators, network in- administrators, IT security people. Uh, they threw one in here that almost made me choke. Cloud custodian. Oh, oh. Yeah. 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 Well, anyway, I, I, <laughs> I'm going to use that at work. <laughs> I guess it's better than being like a cloud shepherd. Well, I mean, it's very precariously close to cloud janitor. It, it really is. Uh, but, but, but anyway, uh, the, this whole this whole study is talking about the the risk posed by these privileged users behaving badly, and they f- they found in a survey of six hundred and ninety three respondents uh, some interesting things. Um, basically, the, one of the undercurrents is that these people feel generally empowered to look at information that they have access to simply out of curiosity, which is which is kind of the the fundamental problem. And then they get into the details, and they they say that of the people they surveyed, only about seventy five percent actually needed the access they have, and twenty five percent obviously don't need the access they have. And of those 25%, 38% have that access because everybody in their role gets it. And a further 36% still have it after they changed jobs and the permissions weren't removed. And I will tell you what, I have personally, um, probably three or four times, been in a position where I've had to think about this kind of thing and changing permissions after someone makes a lateral move in a company is extraordinarily difficult to catch in a in a bigger company. Obviously, if you know everybody by their first name, you know when somebody moves. Uh, however, this is not like when somebody leaves the company and they're no longer in your HR system and you can just purge them from your your IIM system, uh, when when they move jobs, it's very often very, very difficult for you to actually recognize in any kind of a, you know, an automated or systematic way that something has changed. You're, you're dependent on somebody coming forward and saying, hey, I, I don't do that job anymore. I don't need this access. Or the manager saying, hey, you know, this person doesn't need that. And uh, there are a number of companies that deal with this through revalidation processes. Uh, you know, basically the you know, the manager or somebody somewhere, m- maybe a lead administrator, has to periodically revalidate who all has access so that you can catch that as a it's kind of a secondary control. But you know, from a from a primary control p- perspective, you. Uh, my one of one of my pieces of advice is to work with your HR department and and try to get a heads up when when people make uh, job changes. If you are in a bigger company, right? Well, you know, even if you're in a smaller company, it's good to know when somebody's moving roles and somehow build in a process around that that you reassess their you know identity management stuff. What sort of they? What sort of privileges and capabilities they have access to? Yeah. Yep. So moving on, the, uh, of the P 
people surveyed, 49% don't have policies or formal policies for privileged access assignment, which is not, not terribly good. Uh, the main problem they, they, they cite was um, delivering and enforcing uh, privileged user rights. You know? so, so basically, it's, it, it is difficult yeah, so the ma the main problems they cite with delivering and enforcing privileged access rights are n number one at sixty two percent the number the sheer number of requests that come in, and so if you are uh, you know if you're already overwhelmed and you're getting a flood of these and you don't have a well functioning process that's going to exacerbate the problem. Uh, there's not a consistent process or. Uh, no exception handling process. That's 45% of respondents cited that. And again, you know, one of the one of the problems I have seen is if you don't have, especially an exception process. If you don't have an exception process, that can create some big problems. And then 44% said it takes too long. And uh, they didn't call it out in here. But one thing I want to point out, just from personal experience is these problems right here lead to one thing, which is really concerning and uh, and very problematic, and that's sharing of IDs. Absolutely. I need to get my job done. I don't have access. Bob, do you have access? Yeah, let me get you logged in. That's right. That's right. Everybody everybody lines up behind getting the job done and you know because the process takes too long, it's dysfunctional or whatever. And then they share IDs and... You know, once it gets once once you start down that road, it it really goes to pot pretty quick. And I have seen some really really ugly things uh, happen as a result. So, yeah, I really feel this is an area that is under discussed, under addressed, and causing all sorts of likely pain. And and not because I think insider threat is let me put it this way, malicious insider threat is a huge problem. But I think unintentional insider threat is a huge mm -hmm. problem. And, you know, one of the stats in here that, that really caught me was who was most responsible for granting privileged user access to information resources? 51% of the time, the top response is the business unit managers. They're incented to get the job done, not to be secure. So it's very likely they're just going to start granting out whatever things need so people stop whining and they can go do their job. And he isn't bothered with this, you know, account management crap all day. Right. He's got other stuff to do. Becomes a rubber stamp. And so this starts to remind me so much of, like, mismanaged firewall policies. People don't know what ports and protocols things run on, and it's getting in the way, so let's just open stuff up and just so people can get their job done, and that leads to problems down the line. Very similar in my mind. Mm -hmm. uh, and, it, and, it, and it comes about for a couple of reasons. Business needs to get business done. They probably don't have enough people who understand these things in the right departments who have the right balance of risk and usability making these decisions. And as we're shifting more of these sorts of IT activities to self-service, especially with cloud providers and other things along those lines, I think this is going to continue to grow. Now, certainly there are vendors out there that make uh, privileged identity management and, and other tools that manage a lot of this, and um, some of those are really good, but 
they are a bear to implement if you're of any size. And I think they're worth it, but it's non-trivial. Non-trivial to roll those out. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I, I will tell you one one way I've seen it work relatively well is where you identify uh, a functional, a functionally responsible person for security in a particular domain, and that that person or or maybe people are responsible for approving people yeah. or n- new access, you know, n- new requests for access to that permission. As um, long as they're held accountable as well. Right. But, Not just being the rubber stamp guy for the account creation. Correct. I mean, that, yeah. they, they, have, they have to be. But then I also, what I was going to say next is you also have the person's manager involved. Ah. Uh, because, you know, it, you, you may have, and I, I've seen it happen before, where people on the surface have a what appears to be a somewhat legitimate reason but when you, you know when you throw the manager in there you find out that's not really part of their job right and or it shouldn't be or it shouldn't be right and and you know that that can be a a recipe for for trouble if it were to to go through so you know that's that's something to to be cognizant of it's something that works the problem is it makes it a lot more complicated because now you got, you've also, oh, go ahead. Uh, you've also got to have a manager who cares, right? And 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 oh, focuses on this stuff enough. Absolutely, you know, that's kind of a prerequisite. But anyway, what were you going to say? No, no. I, I think that that's basically what I was going to say. You, you're you are reliant on on the integrity and due diligence of, of both those people, the manager and the person who's responsible for the security of the system. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I guess at the end of the day, if you can't trust, I mean, it, to some extent, you have to trust people. And if you, if you sure. can't, you know, that's, you got, you got potentially bigger problems. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you got you to gotta build up a, you know, a, a sensible process. So, uh, moving on, they, they, they ask these respondents some questions about what concerns them most relative to privileged user abuses. And 47% said they were concerned that other insiders, non-privileged insiders, would steal privileged user rights. And 45% said they were concerned that external social engineering attacks would be used to obtain these privileged user rights, which are, you know, I, I would... Tend to agree with those, but then there's this, this this thing that just kind of falls flat, and they they asked what these people are responsible for in the organization, and this is like the sad trombone moment of the whole report. Sixty three percent of the respondents were responsible for monitoring and reviewing log files. Oh. So there's the sad trombone. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with that. All I'm saying is they're not real high up in the food chain. Mm-mm. And uh and they're asking pretty pretty sophisticated questions that re- are representative of their entire business unit and, or their entire business. So anyway, that's one of the by the way, 
that's one of the big problems I have with Ponemon surveys is number one, the variability of who actually responds. And I would, I would also add that there's probably a bias towards people who have, who have time to answer. Right. Yeah, it's, well, you know, if you're doing important work, you're not going to be answering surveys all day. Uh, and then, you know, the, the other is they're, they're asking non-objective questions. They're asking, kind of, they're asking somewhat subjective questions. And if you ever are, uh, if ever interested, there's a lot of science behind surveys and there are, there's very well-known problems between the way people will answer survey questions and what they actually do. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, the whole the whole thing is, and it's with every Ponymon survey that, that I've read, you know, you've got to kind of take it with a grain of salt. It's an interesting report, but, you know, use it for what it is and, and be a cognizant of the limitations of what it, it can actually represent. Well, I recently gave up on the rationality of humanity when I heard that Hurricanes named after women are twice as deadly because people take them less seriously. I I was done. I was like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> Pack Check it, it in. Pack it in. Yeah. Check, please. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what to say about that. Pe- people are people are weird. <laughs> and and by the way, you know, I, this is this is something that has become. Uh, really interesting to me personally, and I'm I'm actually thinking about how to turn this into a, a conference presentation at some point. But what you just described is a you know it I mean it is a real problem. It's not obviously present in everybody, but there are as you know as, as some literature talks about in the, the field of be- behavioral economic studies. People are people don't always think very clearly and i've started getting very interested in how that concept impacts us as security people yeah because it definitely has a play what we're really speaking to is people having respect and believing in warnings and advisories giving them to buy people in authority right so that can easily translate into someone's explaining the information security policy and why this is important not to xyz if they're willing to ignore hurricane warnings based on something silly like it's named after a woman versus a man, now correlation is not causality, I get that, but nonetheless, let's go with it for a moment. How does that impact how well your user training regimen is going? Exactly. Yeah, it's it's a it's a rough problem. Exactly. And and not not only from the user perspective, but also for, from our perspective, do we, as security practitioners, bias certain kinds of threats because they loom larger in our mind for some reason because they have a man's name versus a woman's name? I mean, taking it to ridiculous extents, right? But mm-hmm. you got to wonder. Uh, I think individually. It, most people would would dispute that they're that they make irrational judge, judgments like that, but you know we're people too. We uh, you know we run out when there's a sale <laughs> too. So uh, anyway, uh, let's see. Moving on, the the next 
story we have is actually another. Oh, oh go ahead. Can I make one more comment? Yeah, Sorry. go ahead. As we were jumping, the other thing that I thought was interesting is again, take out the grain of salt, but one of the questions was how does your organization allocate resources to mitigate insider threats? So, 43% of the technologies, 38% of the personnel, and then a mix between training, governance, and other. I really think that is a fundamental problem right there that we're spending far more. Um, or at least a little more in technology than we are personnel. Because I think we have plenty of technology, and I don't think we're utilizing it well, because we don't have good, trained, solid people running it and monitoring it and taking care of it. That's a good point. So, I, you know, everybody wants to just sort of buy the tool and make the problem go away. Uh, it's too subtle. It's too complex for that. Yeah, you, you need to you need to view it as a holistic program that's not just technology. It also requires, you know, expertise to run it. That's a good point. Okay, now we can move on. Now we can move on. Uh, the next story is is uh, from Computing. The title is Business Risk Data Breaches Due to Confusion Over Privileged Users. And this is actually about the same report we just talked about. So we're not going to spend a, a whole lot of time about it, but... The, the point of this article, it would, I thought, added a little important color to the whole privileged user context in that privileged users just are, I should, let me, let me change that. Privileged users aren't just in IT. Privileged users can be spread throughout the business. It can be, you know, super users in HR or accounting or, you know, where, wherever you have administrators or or application administrator application super users that sort of thing and those aren't always in in IT and i would also say that they're not always malicious either i 100% agree they're not malicious and i would almost go so far as to say as a privileged user as a user has access to privileged data so right would that be an executive potentially Yep. You know, you know I, I'm, I'm sort of stretching the definition here a little bit, but at the end of the day, it comes down to the same thing. Right. Yeah, I, absolutely. It's a, it is a very difficult thing to pin down, and uh, the, the, the term privileged user is becoming increasingly popular in our vernacular, but it's, but it's kind of like the word cloud. You know, it means very different things to, very, to, to different people, uh, although everybody kind of thinks they understand conceptually what it is the one thing that that i wanted to harp on because this is this is something i feel pretty passionate about is you know the the privileged user group now not with notwithstanding the whole idea that maybe an hr person is a privileged user but it people tend to think they have magic fairy dust that prevents them from you know getting viruses or or whatever and at the same time, they are they usually have pretty weighty permissions to the to their infrastructure. Yep. And even if you discount the whole you know, the whole malicious aspect, you know, it, you're one click away from some really bad stuff happening on your on your network. And in my view, and I, in my career, one of the things I've done. Uh, a number of times uh, to you know much consternation and hatred is, is to implement some relatively rigid controls around 
these privileged users so that they can't hose up the the company's network by uh, you know by visiting nbc.com at the wrong time. No, absolutely. And I this goes to the core question which is does the culture of the company allow for the for the controls mm-hmm. both technologically and policy to limit this risk? That, that is really the fundamental question. You know, back in a previous role that Jerry and I both worked at, we segmented the folks who were doing a lot of information security research playing with a lot of really nasty pieces of code uh, onto their own network because inadvertently they would make mistakes and that code would get free. And back then it was a lot of self-replicating worms that would have a devastating impact on the network and we wanted to limit that damage. And inevitably somebody would cross-connect anyway and have a box plugged into both networks because it was just easier that way and then bad stuff would happen. Right? And, you know, that is the constant battle we faced. In that particular case, you know, frankly, the culture was not one where there was a consequence uh, for those people. It was, you know, public shaming was the best we could do. Um, Which, again, I don't necessarily recommend. I'm much older and wiser now. Uh, But that was a bit of a firebrand back then. Um... You know, but we got really good at saying and identifying who brought down the network and why. Um, but the company, as a stance, said, "Hey, these are our, uh, breadwinners. These are these are important people. They're doing important work. Um, deal with it, IT." I seem to remember somebody sending out emails to the company saying, "Today's exchange outage was brought to you by." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, those were the days, uh, but. But your your point is valid, and and uh, my in my experience, if the culture isn't already there, a lot of times it takes a shock to the system to to change it. And you know, look, we, the the news over the past year or two is littered with examples where people with administrative privileges have gotten compromised. You know, either with malware or social engineered. Uh, the the Syrian Electronic Army has this uh, down to a very well refined science, and you know I I've personally been witness to some really significant problems resulting from a privileged user getting compromised and being leveraged as an attack point and causing uh, really significant damage to an organization, and you know things change dramatically when that happens you know the the appetite for for controls and the tolerance for whining goes down a whole lot well it's like we were talking about before the show uh and and no offense to any sales guys who may be listening but sales guys and it you know it companies um can get away with a lot because they're sales guys and that's one thing I think you know you see a lot is that there are folks who are above the rules in a lot of cultures of companies that haven't been breached yet and significantly breached right um, and I think that starts to change I think the and, and this you know the one thing I want to say as we're talking about this is is I don't think there is a one perfect answer to this problem I think it really comes down to having to a good understanding of the risk appetite cultural appetite or, you know, control appetite of your organization, um, and all these things that come together that, that equal the culture, the, the budget, the capabilities to get this stuff done, you know, the key 
you know, takeaway I would want the listeners to, to think about is be aware about this risk. It's a big deal, and it doesn't get a lot of coverage. And you know, think about it. Think about what makes sense for your organization. And it's unpopular because it's, you know, it it, it kind of goes to the, the there's this uh, the, there's this thing called the turkey theory, which I've become a big fan of. And the turkey theory goes like this: turkeys never vote for Thanksgiving. And, yep. And uh, you know, if if you're in IT and you're a you know you're an administrator, a privileged user, you know you're not going to be real excited about having additional controls thrust upon you and and often it's those IT people themselves who are responsible for designing and delivering and implementing those controls in the first place so uh, it's an interesting thing but I think we've got to we've got to kind of rise above that and recognize that it is indeed uh, a risk and you know at the end of the day you can look at your job in infosec as noble it's important you're there to keep that company in business. You're there to keep those jobs. You're there to make sure that the other people in that organization still get a paycheck next week and can you know, take care of their families. It matters. It's not just politics. It's not just punching a time card. You know? But, of course, so do other roles in the organization. I'm not saying that InfoSec is any more important, but it's also not less important. Exactly and that's right. one thing that we, we have trouble remembering. Right. We are there to support the mission. Yep. All right. So moving on, our next story comes from Network World. The title is Companies Should Already Know How to Protect Data, FTC Argues. This is maddeningly crazy. Yeah. I, I, this is I, government run amok right here. So, so in the U.S., there is a government regulator called the Federal Trade Commission, or lovingly known as the FTC, and the FTC normally um, monitors the you know the, the marketplace for bad actors. You know people acting in bad faith. You know they they recently sued one of the airlines for advertising airfare uh, seats that didn't that didn't exist. You know they're false advertising that sort of thing. They're they're a you know a consumer watchdog that has some some teeth. But in the recent years, they've gone after several dozen companies for security-related matters. And they, uh, the, uh, this article in particular is about one case uh, where they went after a company here in Atlanta called LabMD. And LabMD got uh, breached, I think it was back in yeah, 2008. Uh, they lost a couple of thousand records about about some of their customers. I think they were actually customers' customers. And um, uh, the FTC went after them. And the the grounds that the FTC is claiming uh, domain over uh, fining and, and punishing LabMD is that uh, LabMD committed unfair business practices by by improperly protecting their customer data. And so, you know, basically what they're what they're saying is okay, LabMD, all of your competitors are have to spend, you know, x amount of dollars to protect their their customers' data. And uh, because you apparently aren't spending x amount of dollars, 
you ended up getting breached and and therefore you know your your whole business plan was kind of wrong in the first place and we're going to you know we're going to fine you uh, and and so that was that that's basically in a nutshell what their what their proposition is and LabMD unlike a lot of other companies is actually fighting back most other companies seem to roll over there was one it was a, a couple of app makers uh, for I think iPhone, don't remember the exact name, but they, uh, you know, they, if I recall the details right, they claimed that the personal information being entered into the app was securely transmitted to their servers. Well, when you look under the covers, it actually wasn't so, and so the FTC uh, fined them. And this, these, I think there were two different companies. They agreed to have an in, to pay for an independent security overseer annually review them and publish a public report every year for the next twenty years, and that's kind of been their mo. They for for every time they settle, they kind of leave that that little stinky package behind. And LabMD is <laughs> LabMD is saying no, you're. You know what are you what are you holding us to, right? What standard did we not meet? And that's kind of a good question because, well, there isn't one. There, there, there isn't a documented standard that describes what the FTC views as sufficient security, right? Because you know, no matter what you do, it's conceivable that you could lose data. And so, theoretically, the FTC is saying, okay, well. You didn't do enough. However, and this is the part where it's just brilliant. Yes. When asked what's the standard, FTC had an epic response. And I'll, I'll let you share it, Jerry. Yes. So I, I, I want to I find the, uh, the exact quote because this is – it is absolutely epic – so, in response to questions, Kaufman, who is with the FTC, repeatedly noted that while the FTC may not have spelled out exactly what it expects companies to do, the agency has released enough information through speeches, blog posts, flyers, and other means for companies to get the idea of security best practices. For example, through the the agency, or, sorry, for example, though the agency has not specifically stated that it expects companies to do penetration tests. It has made it clear that such tests are a best practice. Insanity. I, I really hope the FTC gets their butt handed to them on this. If you're not willing to publish a specific guidance document that is a living document that can be measured against... Let me back up. If you're going to find companies... <laughs> For not living up to something, you better damn well tell them what it is they need to live up to. If the FTC even has the authority to be doing this to begin with, right. which is another question, right? That some are saying the FTC is overstepping their bounds is even doing this. Uh, so yeah, but I, how can you be so tone deaf and just wrong? Just say, well, we haven't ever published a single document or a single standard, but you know we've talked about it a lot, so you know go figure it out. You know they, they uh, in my view, they missed uh, a really good opportunity for legitimacy. 
you know they could have they could have come out and said you're right here you know we're we're we are either here it is or we're going to we're going to uh, go through a process of extracting that out of the you know the minds of the people who who matter but they didn't they just i mean what what they said was nonsensical uh, i mean and the whole thing just feels punitive right it's a uh, after the fact retroactive you failed to meet the standard we never disclosed to you so we're going to fine you into oblivion yeah and you know, we're not saying that you should do a penetration test however if you get compromised and you didn't do a penetration test you obviously should have done a penetration test which uh, <laughs> you know it is uh it is really ridiculous now you know from a high level i kind of get the position they're taking, and I think reasonable people can argue about whether or not they actually have the authority. But I think it's really, really hard to defend the the ridiculous position on holding companies to a non-existent standard. I I just don't get it. Yeah, it's it's just wrong. So, but but the reason I wanted to include this is I especially obviously if you're in the the U.S. The FTC is becoming very activist in this space, uh, and they are, you know, for for better or for worse, until they get shut down, and there's no there's no promise that that's actually going to happen, right? If you get breached, you know, it it might not necessarily be a non-event. You know, it, those app companies. That, that got fined probably didn't see much downside to what what happened to them. You know, they just didn't seem to matter that much. Except, well, here comes the FTC. And my point is, there's stakes out there to not properly managing your security and not properly, properly securing your data that might not be obvious. And just because you're not aware that the FTC may fly in on their broom and you know and, and install a regulator for the next 20 years doesn't mean that they're not out there and you got to be aware of that you can disagree with the politics and i think you know most a lot of people do but they're here so yeah. you know watch yourself you know you brought up a point that it was a good point and it occurred to me that i'm not arguing that there should be no consequences for people who get breached. And that's that's a careful line here, right? We, we sometimes say, well, you know, whose businesses define these? Why, why are these companies, you know, Target or TJX or whoever, nothing happened to them. There were no consequences, ultimately. And some may say, well, good on the FTC for bringing some level of consequence to these companies who failed to secure their data. And I'm somewhat sympathetic to that mindset, but there's a right way and a wrong way to go about it. And this is not the right way to go about it at all. Yeah. yeah. Um, in, in, in fact, I, you know, I, we probably disagree on this point, but I think that it is somewhat sensible to, to look at companies who are drunk and disorderly as it, as it comes to protecting their customers' data when other companies aren't you know uh, but again they're you know you got to have some metric to measure by and that's just where they're not yeah they're and not. 
you know, Excellent. as a liber- as a libertarian, I would argue that it's on the onus of the consumer to know that and pick their companies wisely. But at the same time, the companies can't actively be committing fraud by hiding that sort of information. Yeah. So at the end of the day, if there was some sort of legitimate measuring stick of you know a better business bureau type ranking of how well companies secure their data that were published, I could get on board with that. Although it's such a subjective and difficult thing to measure, and it's a point in time and has all the problems that come with compliance and. But I don't like this plan. This plan sucks. <laughs> I don't think many people like this plan. Yeah. Uh, except if you're, unless you're with the FTC. I'm, uh, I'm guessing you love the plan. Or their auditing company that gets money. Or th- them too. I bet they love yeah. this. Absolutely. All right. Moving on to our next story, also from Network World. Title is Information Overload, Finding Signals in the Noise. This is a, a pretty long article. It's, uh, I think, five pages. Five long pages. This guy, Steve Reagan, who's on a competing podcast, by the way, uh, he writes a lot. I mean, his stories are not short. So anyway, it's a good one. And uh, the point is is probably relatively obvious that we generate a lot of data and you know sometimes it might, I used to have a manager who had this saying you know there's a pony in the pile <laughs> uh, the pile of horse crap there's a pony hidden in there that's a fascinating she saying she was uh she was a vice president that lived on a horse farm and I was not expecting uh, a woman to have made that statement not that women can't but that certainly was not what I envisioned okay she was one on, one of a kind, but um, in any event, point one, one of the I guess kind of getting off the ground with this, he points out that we tend to install a lot of security devices that generate alerts, and a lot of those are installed for the purposes of meeting some compliance requirement, and in many cases, we kind of buy the architecture that you can kind of put it in and use the default settings or, or what have you. And what tends to happen is, you know, we kind of going back to a couple stories ago, we, we short change the people side of, of these kinds of deployments. And we don't, we don't go back and tune it properly. And so we, we're just deluged with more and more stuff. And so he, you know, they po- he points out that in the case of Target, you know, we they had the they had evidence of what was going on, and in fact, he points out that in in some of the previous Verizon data breach reports, uh, a significant percentage of the the people who were breached had evidence of the activity going on in their logs. They just didn't realize it because they're they weren't looking. They were. You know, they were tone deaf because of all of the false positives and on and on and on. And, and the point is, you know, we we don't necessarily need more stuff. We need to go back and start properly managing and tuning the things that we've already got. And uh, so he, he goes on from there saying that uh, some ideas on how to start helping to make the problem better are to focus on the behavior, you know, the, the the events that are detected around the systems that hold your crown jewels. 
You know, so you may have lots and lots of IPS devices all around your network, but maybe it makes sense to focus on, you know, the two or three that are really tightly around those couple of applications or servers or databases or, or what have you, where you have your, your most sensitive stuff. And, and so that is a, it's kind of a way to basically prioritize what you're paying attention to. Uh, some other examples that he, he recommends looking for, and I think these are really good ideas, is looking for evidence of scans and login failures coming from, from your internal systems. And, you know, those are, those are, uh, are good evidence that something's going on. I think that what a lot of companies will find, or maybe not a lot, but some companies will find that there's a lot of noise and, it, when they start looking at this and you have to ask yourself, well, why is that? You know, is it, is that normal or does it mean that there's a lot of bad stuff happening and you, you know, you, you have a bigger problem than you really realize that you, that you do have. Um, he recommends looking for large data transfers, uh, you know, outbound data transfers, which might be indicative of uh, people exfiltrating your data. Although I think that's kind of problematic because it doesn't take a lot of data to, to constitute a breach, and you know, is it was it a uh, you know was it a a patch or was it somebody uploading something to a you know to a, a website? You don't you don't really know. That's a that's a big a big stinky problem that we've got to deal with. And you know, he he kind of goes on from there. I'm trying to find uh, some of his other little pearls of wisdom. Oh, he uh, he talks about Zeus, and Zeus is a you know is typically a very consumer-oriented piece of malware. It's you know focused on stealing banking credentials and and that sort of thing. And what a lot of companies will find is, and, and by the way, I've seen this uh, myself. What a lot of companies will find is that that stuff is happening all the time. They're they're constantly getting Zeus infections across their fleet of of workstations because it's everywhere. Unless you have some, you know, some really good control, like you know maybe application whitelisting or you know something like that, that that is just cutting it off at the knees. You're seeing a lot of this stuff almost to the point, and and sometimes actually past the point where you just tune it out or you know your your response is just to open up a ticket and then you know the the help desk will go and and uh reimage that person's pc you know sometime over the next week but the point is that you know look at what happened with target you know that was uh that was a malware infection on a you know what would otherwise be a pretty innocuous little company you know and as I suspect, strongly suspect, and I think we're already starting to see this, as these bad guys become guys and girls, become more sophisticated. You know, they're they're kind of uh, they're kind of viewing hacking and malware infections like uh, you know, like the the Indian or you know Native Americans used to to view hunting animals. You know, you don't let anything go to waste. Right, and so if you got a if you've got a infected p 
PC inside a company network that you're not going to get any banking credentials from, you know, you're going to try to sell it to someone who would be interested in getting access into your network. You're not going to let that that infection just, you know, go to waste. You're going to capitalize on it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I agree with his bringing up the issue. I think it's a huge issue that, uh, and this is the problem that a lot of us have, is that we've got to get better at processing our log analysis and our tuning our sims and tuning all the technology that is feeding us data. We've got to have bright people looking at it. Uh, His recommendations, some are good, some are okay. Um, But yeah, I was having a conversation with somebody today who was looking at sandboxing um, technology, which will grab potential malware and run it in a VM and see if it's malicious. And they said, you know, they've been evaluating for three weeks and they only found two. So they weren't sure it was worth the money. And, you know, I wasn't trying to sell it. I was just trying to talk to him about it. I said, well, one of those could be really, really, really bad. You know, it's not the quantity. It's the impact. Right. And so to get complacent, right? You know, it's, it's the, the problem. If a car alarm's going off every 10 minutes, we start ignoring it. We've got to do a better job or, or we're getting a false sense of security and we're degrading the point of this technology to where it's actually hurting us. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm the first one to admit that I become complacent. You know, when, when somebody tells me about an infection, uh, you know, I kind of roll my eyes because, you know, th- this, this stuff happens so frequently it's difficult to it's difficult to get excited about each one well you don't have to get excited but you in if that's the case you've got to have the process and the procedure built right to deal with it in a meaningful way every single time exactly that's right? that's the key that's exactly yeah. the key so that may mean staff it may mean you know, some folks just have the policy of, hey, we, we even get a sniff of something on your machine, we're going to re-image. You know, the other thing I was talking about with someone today is I would argue that 75% of incident response is what tools and monitoring technology you've got set up before the incident. You've got to be able to go back and see what happened. Or you're, you're, you're shooting in the dark. You have no idea. But if you've got good technology that can actually show you uh, a piece of malware invoking on the box, you know, he, here was the dropper, here's where it downloaded something else, here's where it loaded, here's where it, you know, kind of injected itself into this app and this app, and then it did this. All that technology is out there. Very easy to get that and deploy it, and then you can get a very good idea of what that piece of malware did. But if you're trying to figure that out after the fact without any of that sort of technology deployed. And that's not even talking at all about networking uh, monitoring technologies and the ability to record network and ac- activity and go back and parse through it. Um, you're just going to be at a loss. You really have to plan for this stuff ahead of time. Yeah, I, I, um, I worked on a... <laughs> I was tangentially involved in a, in a really nasty uh, uh, widespread malware infection at, at a company uh, a while back and um, you know it was it was rampant on this company's network and you know there were there were over 3,000 systems infected and we never could find out how it propagated. And uh, you know, and it was we had. Did you 
Did you consider the mic and the speakers? <laughs> we did. You know, in in hindsight, we we should have started clipping speaker wires. Sorry, but <laughs> was that too, was that too snarky? That was a little snarky. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, the, the the point being that that the lack of instrumentation, uh, you know, really highlighted. Really hampered our ability to figure out what the heck was going on, and also part of the problem was you know it was just it was just everywhere, and it it was kind of a an insidious little thing that that made lots of modifications and and made it very difficult to figure out where it was. And you know we hired the, the, some of the top forensics companies to to help us out, and uh, didn't didn't ever find out how it came in or how it propagated and uh, cleaned it all up and. Then it happened again. Wow! Yeah, and, and so so that what you, what you were just saying is extraordinarily important. It's a very very important thing, and uh, you know it's there's a million and one ways to go about achieving that end. You know, uh, just di- lots of different technologies, uh, but figure out figure it out. You know, put it in. You got to have it in place before it happens. Uh, after it happens, it's too late. All right, so moving on, our last story for the night is, again, from Network World. The title is Business Users Bypass IT and Go Rogue to the Cloud. And, uh, well, again, another another uh, pretty obvious article here. Although, I, I, think, um, I think this one takes a, a slightly different tack than some of the others that they they point out that in many cases IT is pretty resistant to cloud adoption. And again, I th- you know I, th- I think this is where I picked up the uh, the turkey uh, the turkey theory <laughs> comment. Uh, you know, IT's business is running systems, and they're they're kind of naturally going to be he- hesitant to pushing that into the cloud. And so, you know, there's, there's, I think, real risk, and then there's imagined risk and, you know, a, a kind of organizational resistance. And so what what they're pointing out is happening in an increasing amount of, of organizations is that business people are sidestepping IT. They're just going right around. You know, they'll, they'll go to IT, say, hey, we need, uh, you know, we want to do this. And IT, of course, will say, oh, you know, we'll put you on our list and we'll get to you next year or it's going to be really, really expensive. And at the same time, you know, the, the guy just, or business lady, just saw an ad for salesforce.com and, you know, it's $300 a month and what the heck is wrong with IT? I'm going to go sign up. Yeah. And, and you know, he, the, uh, the author points out that this is, really reminiscent of the 90s when IT was was kind of getting off the ground and we were all building big data centers and kind of slapping stuff in. And, you know, we ended up with ultimately a big mess that ended up in, in lot, you know, higher costs and vulnerabilities and we couldn't integrate the syst- all these systems that we built because, you know, back then it was something, it was somewhat similar. You know, we didn't have to buy a big mainframe and, and invest huge amounts of money. We could go buy this little computer and stick it in a in a data center, and and uh, our you know our intern could write a little application. And and so this is kind of repeating itself 
uh, to an extent, maybe not a perfect analogy, but um, point being that it's happening and it's going to keep happening unless you know unless the the business has some backbone and figures out what to do. You know, they 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 points out the the author here points out that actually it's a she. I apologize. Sharon Godin is the author. Points out that organizations need strong cloud governance. I'm not sure that's going to work. You know, and this is this kind of goes back to what you were saying. If if the business has a valid business case, it's going to be really difficult to you know to bypass it. And so I think uh, you've got to have as an organization, you've got to have a really well refined reason why you can't do that. And uh, you know, it's it's obviously it's going to be very dependent on each organization. But yep. I think this is going to become more and more of a problem unless we get in front of it. Yeah, I think fundamentally it, it absolutely comes back to culture. And it absolutely comes back to risk. And the problem is that I don't even know that executives are aware of this problem. And it goes back to, again, well, I just had to get my job done. Well, you just exposed a ton of our company data, and now we've got a breach, and we've got a notification event. And Well, I just had to get my job done, and you guys are too difficult, so it's your fault. And these conversations play out every single day. Exactly. Exactly. So there, there isn't. I don't think there's a, an easy answer to this. It, you know, it's, this is a, this is an extraordinarily difficult position because on the one end, we exist to get business done, and you know, here's an opportunity to go get it done much more cost effectively, at least on the on the outside, and and so you know, possibly the things that you need to do are are to be able to. S- somewhat clearly articulate what the hidden costs are and you know what the what the downside of having them run off and and subscribe to that cloud service are and and honestly i personally have seen uh, and this, i guess this goes back to the whole cloud what does cloud mean and you know i've i've seen an unfortunate number of cases where people run off and build their own systems off into the cloud whether whether it's aws or or something else, and uh, and for some reason, they believe that because it's in the cloud, it you know that's some somewhat fundamentally different than if they were to stick a server in a you know in a data center somewhere. I, I don't know why they think that, and then it gets compromised, and you know, and everybody runs around. But uh, you know, it, it it is it's not different. Now, where where it does get a bit different is when you start talking about the application layer. You know the application hosting and 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 that sort of thing, but that that has its own problems, especially if you're in some kind of a regulated industry, or you're talking about uh, you know confidential or sensitive information, and, and on and on and on. And you know what 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 kind of liability does that that uh, provider have if yep. something bad were to happen? And so there's just lots of lots of. Uh, of I guess opportunities to have a, a, a rational discussion about why you may or may not want to do it, but I think that the opportunity for us just to flat out say no is uh, is demonstrably not working. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the key, and you and you said this, I'll just reiterate, is 
if your users aren't doing this now, they will be. If you're sure they're not, you probably don't know. Uh, and you really should know what your executive buy-in is on this. On this, Right. And uh, because this is going to bite you. Right. And, and by the way, if that is your business strategy, you may need to embrace it. You know, and yes, and, and you know there are tools and there are technologies and there's controls and there's policies you can build around this. It's not, you know, like a never do this at all costs. It just is, like you said, you've just got to embrace it and go that path, but don't be in denial about it. Right, because at the end of the day, if that's the direction your business wants to go in, you know, your replacement will be probably pretty happy to uh, to, to work on it for you, or for them. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would say is just echoing uh, or kind of replying to something you said earlier that that our job as InfoSec guys is to support the business. Sometimes our job is to warn them of things they're not thinking of, though. Occasionally, we do have to be contrarian. Uh, well, no, no question about it. I mean, we're you know we are we are the insurance agent saying you know it, it might not be the best thing, best idea to put the trampoline in your backyard. So yeah, don't misunderstand that we're saying be yes men and just do whatever they say. The key is to understand what the question behind the question is, what the request behind the request is, what what are they trying to achieve from a business standpoint. Right. And a lot of times, users will come at you with their solution. Ask them to come at you with their problem. There and you, you go. figure out how to solve it. That's the that is the that is the right answer. And, and I think I think that the, the difficulty is that IT is a is a relatively rapidly evolving space. And so what you know what may have been the answer to a particular business problem as constructed by IT is not going to be the same answer necessarily that is done today. And so you know we this kind of goes back to we need to be uh, it's maybe not necessarily strictly as security people, but generally, more generally as IT people, we need to be, you know, aware of, of, you know, what the, what the current trends are, because otherwise we're going to potentially look pretty dull and not, not understanding what the, you know, what, what's, what the mark, current market forces are. Absolutely. So, anyway, we beat that one to death. <laughs> so <laughs> anyhow, that is, uh, that is the, the, news for the night and for the week i appreciate everyone spending the, the last hour with us and look forward to talking to you again next week in the interim you can find the the podcast on the internet at www.defensivesecurity.org and uh, you can send your feedback any ideas or uh, you know, things you'd like us to cover, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. You can follow us on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg and me at MaliciousLink. And with that, I bid you adieu for another week. Have a good one. See you guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye.